Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? <clears throat> it is really, really, really good to be back. I've been out for two Sundays, and it was a bummer. Uh, being uh, sick, as, as many people have been sick in the last month, few months, is, is, is a real drag. So it was, it, was, it was rough being out for multiple reasons. I didn't feel great, right? Uh, but it was also, you know, I was thinking about it as I was prepping the message this week. Something that really resonated with me is what an incredible joy it is to serve and be in fellowship with this community. And being out for two weeks, uh, actually, just it, it, there was an amazing longing to be back here and reconnecting. And it's so good that we have that. That's a compliment to you guys. Hey, I love being around you. Uh, but I, I really, really missed being here and was so looking forward to being back. The timing of this ailment was quite interesting. We had to reschedule some things. Home groups were kicking off. A new sermon series was kicking off. A bunch of stuff that I'd put a lot of time and planning into. And, uh, and so that was exciting. But I'm really excited about the home group starting. Yeah? Who, who's, who's excited about home groups? You should be. You should be. Home groups are really, really great. And on top of home groups, we started our sermon series last week. Glenn did a fabulous job kind of bringing us some background to uh, the book of Hebrews as well as walking us through the intro, uh, the first four verses of the text. Uh, if you missed that, you can check it out on, on YouTube or on Facebook or right on our website. And I would encourage you, if you're going to be uh, with us through this series, it's really worth catching that intro. It gives you uh, important background to the series. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize it. Glenn last week talked about eight things. I'm not going to talk about those eight things. You've got to go back and listen to the message. Um, but the kind of the, the, the snapshot that I think the author from Hebrews wants us to catch is the incredible supremacy of Jesus, okay? So as we look at chapter one, the author wanted his uh, readers to understand the incredible supremacy of Jesus, and he ultimately wanted them to be stunned, blown away by what an incredible figure this God the Son of God, Jesus, was. And so as we look at that, although we may not be able to relate with some of the content or some of the struggles of comprehending who Jesus was, it's important that we understand that what, the, the, the takeaway is, no matter what we may be struggling with, what, no matter what might be holding us back, whether it's the, the drawl of life or just the daily routines, whatever it is, we want to be returning to an attitude, an aspect, a livelihood of absolute adoration and stunnedness to Jesus. Okay? Yeah, I got a few amens. Are we all on the same page here? Yeah? We want to be stunned by who Jesus is. And the text we're going to look at today is Hebrews 2. It's a big text. I'm going to set my uh, stopwatch here. Because you guys are in for a treat, right? Are we excited to go on an adventure together this morning? Yeah, it's a great text. Are we excited to go on an adventure this morning? Woohoo! I'm excited to go on an adventure, but I don't want to take you too long and keep you here until dinner. So I'm going to set my stopwatch, and, and that way it'll keep me kind of in pace. 
Some of the things we want to be thinking about as we approach this text is that one of the main elements is this concept. Last week, Glenn talked about returning Jesus or refunding Jesus or trading in Jesus. And the fact that we find reasons in our lives to uh, exchange Jesus, whether it's, it's unanswered prayer or discouragement or we read something in scripture that we're like, I don't like that, you know. So there's a lot of different reasons why we can can, can, can kind of walk away, why someone may walk away. But the warning from today's text is don't drift away, okay? I'm going to explain the difference, okay? We, oftentimes in life, we don't just jump into the deep end and get ourselves in trouble. Crud, I jumped into a 12-foot pool and I can't swim. Well, that was a mistake. But sometimes we can get caught up in the current of life and be dragged into the deep end and we don't know how to swim. You with me? Great. So the goals today, the things we want to really pick out as we're talking about this concept of drifting is that to know Jesus a bit better gives us an anchor so that we don't drift. To recognize the supremacy, the incredible supremacy of Jesus is to give us an anchor so that we don't drift. And the second goal I'm hoping that we can pull away from, Lord willing, from the text today, is that holding fast to the truth. We oftentimes get caught up in how we feel or how we would like the truth to be, but we know something about Jesus. He is what? The truth, the way and the life, right? But he's the truth. We believe that there is ultimate truth. When we try to make God fit our feelings, or we try to design him to match what we think is right, we aren't worshiping God anymore. We're worshiping ourselves, okay? So we want to be tied to the truth. And, we, and, and, and I think in order to do that well, it, we want to understand and acknowledge and live in the incredible supremacy of Jesus. Amen? All right. So let's... Look at the text. Hebrews 2, it starts off, therefore. And I know when something says therefore, what's it there for? We just talked about it. The incredible supremacy of Jesus. And we should be stunned. What should we be? What should we be? All right. So therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, uh, while uh, he made him a little lower than angel than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Hmm. 
At present, we do not see this yet. Everything, we do not see, oh, sorry, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, to bring many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who uh, sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to be called uh, to call them brothers, saying, "I will let you. Uh, I will let your name. Uh, sorry, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook." Of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, thought, uh, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for our sins, for the sins of all people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we just pray that you would be speaking to us today through this word. God, that we would be starting afresh this morning with a, with a new found adoration and uh, just submission to your amazing supremacy in all things, Jesus, that that would be the light of our lives and that we would be excited to go out because of that. Lord, I just pray that you would be moving in, in, in what we learned today. Be with us. Be with me in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to move some things around. Okay. So, as we've talked about briefly, don't drift away. This is, we're going to look at, we're going to break this up into three chunks. Okay. There's the first four verses, which uh, is a sermon. And then there's the next five, which is another sermon. And then there's the next, uh, I don't know, seven or so uh, through 18, which is like another sermon. The way I'm going to break this down is we're going to have a, like a snippet of an intro for that first bit, then we're going to really focus in on 5 through 10, and then we're going to form some conclusions as we look at the end of the text. So we start off with don't drift away. And as I was looking at different commentaries on this, I thought that uh, William Barclay actually had a really neat way of the, the Greek words that are used for, um, for play uh, close attention uh, and uh, drifting away, the, the Greek words that are used there, 
uh, have interesting, have also nautical meetings, which are very interesting. One talks about mooring up a ship, that's the, pay close attention, and the other uh, is uh, not to slip past a harbor. Um, and so he then said, I think that when we read this verse in a nautical way, gives us a real clear picture of what the author is talking about. And so this is how Barclay rewrote the the first verse. He said this, therefore, we must uh, more eagerly anchor our lives to the things that we have been taught, lest the ship of life drift past the harbor and be wrecked. Okay? Therefore, we must more eagerly anchor our lives to the things that we have been taught, lest the ship of life drift past the harbor and be wrecked. I talked a little bit about the fact that oftentimes we don't plunge ourselves into destruction, um, but we kind of. It, but it's easy to slip, slowly drift into places we don't want to be, and I think in this. With this picture of a ship drifting past the harbor into a wreck, it, it, it gives me kind of this idea of like kind of falling asleep at the wheel, right? You, you're, you're sailing into the harbor, suddenly you get struck with COVID, and you are just like, oh, man, I'm exhausted. And you lay down, and the ship just kind of into a bunch of rocks, right? So <laughs> don't fall asleep, Yeah. Keep, keep that focus. Focus on Jesus. And the author kind of reiterates this concept in th- verse 3. Don't neglect such a great salvation. He then affirms it again in chapter 13. Not to neglect such a great salvation. Not to drift away. This book is a warning to believers not to drift away. And I would argue that it's also a warning to churches, provides a good warning to churches to not drift away. It's really easy over time for churches to drift into seasons of stagnation or even worse, regression. And then when we start to drift, kind of like when I talked about drifting into the deep end, we often drift downstream. You know, if you think of Jesus as the root, as the source of what's good, and we're striving, we're, we're enduring towards that for the prize, that when we start to drift, we kind of drift away. This isn't something that I just think, it's something that Scripture affirms. And so we'll look at a few Scriptures that affirm this concept. Galatians 6.9 says this, Let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest, If we do not give up, don't give up. Hold fast. You'll reap what you sow, but make sure you're focused on Jesus and and enduring towards him. In Hebrews 10, 35, it says this, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And then in 36, "For for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Hold fast to your confidence in Christ. Hold fast to your confidence in Christ. This comes back to what I talked about, about anchoring ourselves in who Christ is. And then in Matthew 24, 13, it says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
And this is talking about the hardship of end times. And I, I just, and there's, there's more and more and more. I'm sure there are texts that are coming to your mind, you know, run the race to, to win the prize type texts. And so I'm encouraging you to stay focused, to hold on to Jesus, to be confident in, in who he is, to be enduring as you're pursuing doing good to others, being doing good to each other, encouraging and uplifting each other. And what I do want to mention is this isn't me telling you to go and become a Pharisee. Because every time you say these types of things, there's some, somebody or somebody's in, maybe including myself, that are like, I got to do more, I got to do more, I got to do more, I got to do more. And we disconnect the reality of our salvation. Hey, pay t- close attention to this great salvation, right? The work is finished, right? And so the eagerness to endure is out of an amazing awe of being stunned at the greatness of who Jesus is. Glenn talked last week about why he has held fast through time and the one thing, and that one thing is Jesus, and it will be Jesus every time. Amen? Amen. So we want to hold fast to Jesus. What could be the causes of drifting? I'm sure you can think of some in your own life. Maybe that's something you should reflect and pray into. But some that came to my mind would be, you know, especially in the case of maybe a church, would be weariness on the part of people who are serving. Oftentimes we serve and we serve, and serving is really good. It's really important. I can't reiterate that enough. But when serving becomes the master and we're serving for service's sake, well, then it's just idolatry and we're going to wear out and be really bummed. You know, (laughs) we need to lean into the strength of Jesus as we serve. But people become weary of serving. This is normal. And you shouldn't be feeling shame in this. If you're feeling weary in service today, I would love to pray with you. Maybe we can figure out how to walk through that together. And in fact, I think that's what the body of Christ is all about, right? Yeah. I think a weak or irreverent perspective of the supremacy of God leads a church into drifting, right? And then a lack of appreciation of the incredible gift of salvation. And this gets into that concept of becoming a Pharisee, which we all can be drawn into. If we have a weak um, or are lacking in appreciation of the incredible gift of salvation, that can happen. So let's not drift, right, church? Let's not drift. So that's kind of the intro. That's that first little bit there. And now we're going to jump into the meat. And I think I'm doing pretty good. So that's great. Round of applause. All right. Woohoo! How are you still awake, everybody? Yeah? I'm doing it. Harold's like, you got me. Man, you got me. All right, brother. I'm walking through this with you. All right. So, so we're looking at verse 5 through 10, and, and, and it all starts, and there's been a, there, you know, as I was chatting with small groups from this week, there's a bit of confusion because there's a lot of interesting language that's used that in church we uh, understand a specific way, um, but I'm going to try and provide some clarity. Again, the key word there is try. And so if, you, if I don't do it, that's okay. Come talk to me after. Or if I say something that's ever confusing, please come talk to me. I would love to know because I'm just a person up here who's studying God's word and talking to you about it. You know, I have a gift to do that, I think. I think God's given me a gift to do that, Lord willing. But it doesn't mean I'm not going to make mistakes. So listen, be alert. But the language here is quite 
quite confusing. One of the particular things it said is, is, is uh, in this first chunk of text, it's talking about a promise. Okay? It's a promise. The promise is from Psalm 8. And that promise is to people. Christian, Christian people. At the time, it would have been the family of God, right? And so today, the family of God, who's that? Us. If you are following Christ and have accepted that beautiful gift of salvation, this is a promise to you. Crazy. And this, this is like when you, when you read this, you're kind of like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. We'll get there. Okay, so let's take a look. Um, this, in, the, in Hebrews 2, it covers this text. It abbreviates it. The, the writer is, is testifying to this Psalm 8 from somewhere. So he, he clearly knew it. But it's kind of like me up here. I know it says in the Bible, right? So, and, and he, he does miss a line, but that's okay. You know, we can, we're going to add that in there. So, okay, so we're going to look back at Psalm 8. We're going to look at 1 through 6. This is the promise with the, which the author of Hebrews is talking about. This In Hebrews 6 through 8, we're going to look at Psalms 1 through 6, okay? Psalm 8, 1 through 6. Is it up on the screen? I think it's supposed to be. There we go. Awesome. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of him? human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Wow. So like I said, this is a promise to those who know Christ. And where it gets confusing in the text, if you're reading in Hebrews, it talks about, uh, I think it's in the psalm, it would be in verse 5, or sorry, 4. In, in what I was talking about, it says, mankind that you're mindful of him, human beings that you care for them. Oftentimes in a lot of your, uh, in a lot of the translations you would be using in Hebrews would say, the son of man that you care for him. And many of us are familiar throughout the New Testament of Jesus being referred to as the Son of Man. So I think a lot of people kind of insert, wait, well, who, who's being talked about here? Well, in Hebrew, Son of Man would have met, um, well, it'd be like, in Hebrew, if you were talking about a person that was particularly strong, right? A beef, beefy person. I'm trying to think of a good example. I don't know. Uh, Glenn says he's a good example. You can judge that on your own. But like... Uh, so, so a strong person you would refer to in Hebrew as a son of strength, okay? You with me? So in Hebrew, if you're referring to a strong person, you would refer to him as a son of strength. And so in the Psalm, when it says son of man, that's like a poetic way of saying mankind, a person, right? Okay, you with me? All right, cool. Hopefully that alleviated some amount of confusion, right, in that, in that particular text. So here this promise is to us that we'll be crowned with glory and honor and that everything will be subject under our, subjected under our feet. Does it feel like that right now? 
Anyone? Anyone feel like everything's under their feet? No, no, nobody, nobody feels like. I can tell you in the last two weeks, I felt like I was under the foot of everything, right? I was the punching bag for the world. It didn't feel like it was under my feet. But don't worry, the author of Hebrews is going to cover that. As we get in, after, he, after he, he quotes this promise to us out of Psalms, he then says this. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, him being us, he left nothing outside his control, his being us. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, him being us. Okay? Right? You with me? So we don't see everything in being in subjection to us at this present time, right? We're all on the same page. We've, been, we've suffered in some capacity in the last week, likely. You know, if not, God bless you. Um, uh, God continue to bless you because he clearly blessed you last, last week if you didn't suffer at all. Um, okay? So then he takes it. He says, we don't see this yet. We don't see this for us. We don't see everything under subjection under our feet. But we see him. And here's the pivot. Okay? Now the same word that was used literally a sentence before talk about us is talking about Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. God, Jesus moves into the brokenness into the suffering, into the dying for the world, and lives it out with us, okay? He suffered and died to conquer it. Now crowned in glory and honor as our forerunner, as our founder, our representative, and he brings us with him through death to glory and honor, okay? You with me? And this is where I have a question. Maybe you do too. My question's this. Why death? Why death? Why suffering? Why disease? Why all these things? Couldn't there be another way? Why must we suffer disease and death? And we can wish there was another way. It's what the Jews did when Jesus came in the first place. Suffering? Crucifixion? What? That's not the king I was looking for. It's not the king I was looking for. And Glenn... Referenced a lot of these things last week. Why? Why this? Why is this happening? All this comes back to this big question, why? And that brings us to verse 10. There's a lot to examine in verse 10 and to unpack. So we're going we're gonna to rest there for a minute. In verse 10, it says this. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist to bring many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting. When I think of God, I think of that God is fitting. He is the definition of fitting. He can do whatever he wants. So why? Why was it fitting? It doesn't make any sense that it was fitting. But the author says it was fitting. Okay, 
What I want to challenge you with today, so here's a side challenge. If you're going to take notes, grab your little notepad, grab your phone, whatever, put this in. This is what I'm going to challenge you with today. I'll get to the challenge part. You can kind of take your stuff out while I'm yammering on here, and then I'll give you the challenge, okay? So often when we're reading scripture or when we're examining what God has done, we look at stuff and we either don't like it or we don't understand it. And so our response is to try and make it fit, right? I think we all do it, right? If you're a human, I think you you tend to look at things and when, when the puzzle pieces don't look like they go together, you try and make it fit, right? And so what I wanna challenge you with is we can all attest that our perspectives are amazingly finite. Can we, I get an amen to that? Amen to that. What do I know? Not a whole lot, okay? Not a whole lot. But yet we can look at things in scripture and try and make it fit. So my encouragement to you, this isn't me discouraging you from thinking, okay? I want people to think, right? It's good to think and it's good to challenge ourselves. But when you read scripture and you hit a, pit, a part that goes, man, that doesn't look like it fits, say to yourself, here's the challenge. It is fitting. It is fitting. Okay? The reason why I want you to, that, that you, because if you have that posture of it is fitting, then the difference is a humility in your approach to how you're looking at scripture over a I know best. And when you know best, who are you worshiping? Not God, you're worshiping yourself. That's just the reality. Now we can spend our entire lives trying to figure out how it fits and understand the design that God made. And there's a lot of perspectives and I'm not dissing any of them. But I'm just saying when we take ourselves so seriously that we think we know all the fits, we're trying to pretend that we're someone we're not. We attest to the greatness, the gloriousness, the all-knowing authority of God, but yet many times we think we know best. Amen? And I do it every day, okay? I'm not trying to make you feel like a, a, a cruddy person here. I'm just trying to illuminate a reality of living, right? Great. Sweet. It is fitting. So the challenge, when you see things that are hard, it is fitting. When I was sick this week, I accepted it and I said, it's fitting, you know? Lord willing, if I find out tomorrow I've got cancer, I can take that and go, it is fitting. It's hard, it's a hard thing to do. But that takes incredible humility and I would argue that from a place of that type of humility, we're in a much better place to walk in the light of the amazing supremacy of an all-knowing God, amen? This is hard stuff. All right, so it's fitting. And then the next piece I want to look at as this concept in 10 of the founder, okay? This concept of the founder. So 10, it says, it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. Okay, let's, let's actually, before I jump to this, let's unpack that really quickly. For whom and by whom all things exist. Everything exists for God's glory. Right? Okay, so that comes, that kind of brings us back to that it is fitting, right? What do we exist for? What do we exist for? We exist for God's glory. It is fitting. Okay. So God, Jesus, 
our founder. God made him the perfect founder, the founder. When we look at this word in Greek, it means head or chief, as in a general, a head of an army. It can also mean founder or originator, as in somebody who finds a city or, or found a family or found a school. Um, it could be used in the sense of like source or origin. Uh, a good ruler would be the, the, the source of peace. A bad ruler would be the source of confusion. But the thing that clings to all the different possible definitions of this word, this founder, is that it is the founder is the one who begins something in order that others may enter into it. He is the author of blessings into which others may also enter. Right? So God is the founder, the author, the source, the origin of our ability, Jesus is the founder, sorry, for our ability to walk into his blessings. And then the last piece of 10 that I do want to, I want to talk about mostly because this word shows up a lot in Hebrews. So as we're walking through this series, as we're talking about things together in small group, we want to talk about this word, and the word is perfect. I've talked about it before, but I think it shows up something like 14 times in the book of Hebrews. And so it's important that we understand this concept of perfect in how it would, how you would really translate that from the Greek. Okay, so the, the word they're using for perfect comes from, uh, I, good luck with the pronunciation, here it comes, teleios, I think, T-E-L-E-I-O-S, all right? And this word is used to describe something that is fully adequate for the task for which it was designed or fully carries out the purpose for which it was designed. And, um, and so that's a little bit different than, than how we would think of perfect oftentimes. And the reason I'm talking about this is because as we look at this, it says that that uh, in 10 it says, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Well, based on our definition of perfect, Jesus was always perfect, right? Amen? He didn't need to be made more perfect. But what I think the point in this text is that he was certainly perfect, but for the first time in the entirety of him being perfect, God, the Word, the Son, Jesus suffered like us, okay? And so in this suffering, Jesus was taken from an unproven perfect to a proven perfect through testing, okay? That also helps us get a better understanding of as we're walking through things, it talks about in multiple scriptures we've talked about in the last year about us becoming perfect, right? Well, the concept of this becoming perfect is that as we move through suffering, We are perfected by trials to a proven perfect as we secure ourselves to Jesus. Got it? Sweet. All right. We're working through. All right. So, Aaron, make sure you have your things in order before you move on. All right. I did it. Okay. So, um, okay. So here we are. We're coming into the last little bit. We've talked about Jesus We asked a question, right? What was the question? Let's go back to the question. The question was why, right? Why suffering? And then we said, well, it was fitting. Why was it fitting? 
It's a great question to ask, and it's okay to ask those questions. In all my exhortation there, I wasn't discouraging you from asking those questions. It's a really good question to ask. And I'm going to propose a why it was fitting, and I think that the author of Hebrews proposes why it was fitting. Um, uh, But again, take it for what it is. It's me saying some things, okay? So, why was it fitting? I haven't answered that. Here's my thoughts. Jesus, through suffering, made us a family. He became not only our Savior, our Lord, our Creator. All of these things are true. But through suffering, he became our family. He became our brother. Okay? Romans 8, 29 puts it like this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers being all of us. My brother, the creator of the universe, our big brother. This is affirmed in verse 11, kind of summarized. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then it's affirmed again in 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So, I would propose that it was fitting so, or so how is it fitting that Jesus, the firstborn, our big brother, suffered? And this is kind of the image that I got when I thought about this. I am hoping I don't cry, but I might. I imagine God looking down on a broken world. We all suffer. We're afflicted by disease and suffering and death. And when it, with a tear in his eye, he thinks to himself, it's fitting. That my son, my firstborn, should suffer perfectly to bring salvation to a suffering world. Through this suffering, our big brother shares the sufferings of the rest of the family. I'd like to invite up the worship team. So family, I hope this morning we were able to achieve some of the goals I I was praying for this week. I hope this morning maybe we know Jesus a little bit better. Maybe a little bit. And I hope that through the encouraging words this morning, we're able to hold fast to the truth, taking ourselves a little more lightly, but taking God incredibly seriously. Let's not drift. Let's keep our eyes fixed on our founder, our perfecter, our big brother, recognizing and resting in his rule over our lives and the salvation that he has paid for for us. Amen.